Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Have you ever wanted to do something, but it seemed so unrealistic, so counter to the norm or the expectations of your world that you buried it deep inside? Maybe you've always wanted to join the military and you find yourself the general manager of a small chain of three car washes, day in, day out, washing cars, but lamenting the lost possibility for patriotism, brotherhood, and the ecstatic joy that allegedly comes from watching the life leave a terrorist's eyes, knowing that wherever he is going, his last look, his last memory was of an American man. Perhaps? You want to own 25 dogs and create a dog rescue, but you're currently a construction foreman. Or maybe, just maybe, you're like my one friend in college that we basically had to just force to be gay since it was so obvious to everyone but himself. And if you're like that, maybe you've always wanted to experience the taste of another man's mouth. But if there's one thing I've learned in life, it's that those little things, they don't just go away. They calcify, they metastasize until you wake up 55 years old, decrepit, no zest for life, married to a woman you wish was a man. And sometimes, like that episode of Black Mirror where the two male best friends start fucking each other in VR and it's super cool and then they're like, maybe we're gay? And then they meet in person and they kiss each other and they're like, don't like that at all. Sometimes, you try the thing and you realize You never really wanted to do it in the first place, and what you thought it was going to be like was way different than what it actually was, and you can move on. But if you don't try, you'll never know. And the antidote to regret, the chemo to the cancer of your repressed dreams, is to step, to force your corpse, to drive your goddamn body to whatever activity it is, and to do it for me. Ever since I learned that I could make someone laugh, I realized, hey, that's pretty fucking interesting. My first memory was a joke I used to tell when I was like six. If you're an American going into the bathroom and you're an American coming out of the bathroom, what are you when you're in the bathroom? European. Ha ha ha. But I would tell that joke to all my dad's distinguished business friends when we lived in Korea. And I'd sit at the table with them, you know, and and I'd just like talk to them. And, you know, which amused my parents and their business friends, you know, they're all Koreans. They're like, oh, American children, so smart. Uh, What? (laughs) A little bit later, I remember in junior high learning the Superman joke. So Superman is flying around. He's ready to fuck. He's like, man, I'm, I'm looking around like, man, I just need to fuck. And he sees on the top of a building. He sees Wonder Woman enjoying herself. And he's like, huh, I'm the fastest man in the world. I could fly down there. Bah, bah, bah. I could fly away. She wouldn't even know. He's like, oh, man, I'm real horny. 
that's not nice. I shouldn't do it, but you know what? We're going to try it. He flies down there. Pa, pa, pa. It's fucking great. He flies away and he's like, man, I feel so much better. And Wonder Woman is like, well, what was that? And the invisible man's like, I don't know, but my butthole hurts. <laughs> oh, dude. I remember I couldn't tell that joke. I couldn't tell it without cracking up for like four years. Moving a little further in childhood, I have this memory of my great friend, Evan Poteet. Wild, crazy, loved Pokemon, ridiculous, now dead, rest in peace. But we would play the penis game, which... Nothing weird or anything. Don't get excited. It's a juvenile game of chicken where the first person whispers the word penis. Penis. The next person has to be a little louder. Penis. And a little louder. Penis. Until someone shouts, penis! And the next person has to shout it even louder. Penis! Players attempt all types of moves. You know, they cough the word penis. <laughs> penis. Or they yell, penis. But in junior high, there is not a much higher risk behavior than screaming penis at the top of your lungs, getting heard by the principal, and immediately getting escorted out of the situation for making the forbidden sound. And I remember, we were in the midst of a spirited game of penis, and I saw the dean approaching. And I just let out a powerful, like, penis! It was powerful, it was tough, it was hard to beat. But Evan, he got this look in his eyes, wild, reckless he didn't give a fuck he was gonna win and like a true samurai he had accepted death he stands up he puffs out his diaphragm i see it and i know oh no this is gonna come from the stomach and he bellows penis across the lunchroom the dean taps him on the shoulder he turns around he walks immediately to the principal's office never to be seen again you know i once got a detention for humping a bookshelf just for laughs. Ever since I knew the concept of humor, I'd been intrigued by it. A social lubricant more effective than alcohol, the command of humor in every social interaction increases the user's success. And it's funny. And I thought, you know, maybe I want to try out stand-up comedy. But for some reason, actually many good reasons, I haven't done it. But I've had things parallel and tangential to it. I joined Toastmasters and I was given all these speeches and then I was like, haha, I'm making everybody crack up. This is fun. I have this fucking crazy podcast and I have a Rolodex of funny stories in my brain purely because it amuses me. Like that Superman joke. I don't care. I've said it before. The only person I have to amuse in life is me and I'm successful and goddamn it, that amuses me. But it's always been on my bucket list to at least do one open mic and just see what happens. You know, I imagine it's going to be just like my friends who are in bands and, you know, that, that deep dream of being a rock star transforms into the understanding that, oh, this is just a skill and this will always be part of my life, but like I might never be rich, but I'm just gonna do it for the fucking game. You know, because I have no desire to be famous or travel around the country on the road as a comedian. Dude, my back's so fucked up, I can't even sit for too long. And I'm doing too much other shit. You know, I'm starting a firearms martial art. I'm baptizing myself in the fire of sales. I'm getting huge and I'm making fucking cash. But 
like I did many moons ago to force myself to do an IDPA match. At the beginning of the year, I looked down in the shower and I saw a strong, relaxed, long penis. And I realized to truly live this life, to live according to the way, I had to go on at least one date with a man. And maybe I like it. And I'm like, fuck, dude, stand-up comedy is awesome. And I'm gay. Like my friend, he, he, you know, he came back and he was like, guys, guys, it was so great. I'm gay. We're like, yeah, dude, we know. <laughs> You're the only one in this whole fucking fraternity that didn't know. And he's like, we had sex. And it was like, uh, okay, that's really cool. And then he's like, is it weird that he videotaped it? And we're like, Jesus Christ, dude, your first time dating a man, you got fucked on camera. But yeah, that guy was probably going to kill you. But I'm very glad that you like the concept and that you've accepted your true self. So maybe it'll be like that. Or maybe I'll come back and I'll realize eh, it isn't for me. And I realize I, ha I have to do it. I, at least one open mic and prepare five minutes of stand-up comedy material. So I added it to my goals for the year. And I told Jordy I would give him my fucking shotgun if I didn't do these very achievable goals. And here we are. With the year drawing to a close, my Benelli Nova shotgun under threat, and I must commit to do five minutes of stand-up comedy. And so on this series, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to cover a book that I came into contact with over 10 years ago. It squirreled itself away in my head, and, and I said, whenever I decide to sack up and do, a, do, do comedy, I'll, I'll read this. So we're going to cover the book, The Humor Code, and at the end of this, I'm going to risk death, I'm going to bear my taint and soul, and I'm going to finish this series with five minutes of the best stand-up I can muster, and then to add insult to injury, I'm going to drive my fucking corpse to that bar in Bloomington, Indiana at some point that does open mics, and I'm going to do five minutes of stand-up in front of real people, because we only have one life, and God damn it, I need to know what a man's mouth tastes like. And where other episodes might have erred on the side of intellectual or philosophical, I'm pretty sure, my priest, that this episode is going to be the podcast version of that video with the parrot who goes, suck, suck, into the book. Now, I'm not a big disciple of Joe Rogan, though my actual guess is that he's a pretty cool dude in real life. And... It's really easy to make up stories about someone so successful. Like, he does annoy me sometimes and is a bit of a fuckboy. But I also have to remember that, like, I think he gets devastatingly high before his podcast, too. So, like, you inject anyone with enough THC to alter an elephant's mental state, they might not be the most well-behaved either. But long ago, I heard the author of this book on Joe Rogan and resolved to one day study it. Because humor is something that all cultures have. It is almost a universal human pattern. And this book is a study of what makes things funny. Written by Peter McGraw and Joel Warner. Peter McGraw? Peter McGraw. He's a psychologist. He's a funny, in quotes, academic studying humor. He was a professor, fucking whatever. And he was saying like, I'm gonna study how humor comes about. And he was just funny enough that everyone's like, oh, that's a cute thing to do. Joel Warner is a journalist. He's bored with his life. He's wanting to do something better. And they united to study this concept and to write a book about it. And so, my priests, I don't know where this one will go. When you listen to it, I might be dead. 
But if you can hold out, if you can make it through, and if I do my job correctly, this episode should defrost even the darkest of hearts, induce at least one chuckle, if not a full belly laugh, and deconstruct how to master a verbal astroglide that you can use to lubricate any social situation for fun and profit. Humor can be dissected as a frog can. But the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. Let's kill some frogs. That's a quote from fucking Pete, who is a professor and has OCD. People a lot smarter and more important than the two of us have pondered what makes things funny. Plato, Aristotle, Thomas Hobbes, even Darwin. But none of them got it right. And for some reason, we... Think we can succeed where they failed? Says Joel. This book is narrated from Joel's perspective. Who are we? Are we geniuses? Are we male models? Are we disgruntled former post office workers stuck between the hope of a permanent pension and the knowledge that work in a horse and buggy factory cannot continue forever? No, not exactly. Let's start with my co-author, Peter McGraw, the so-called brains of the operation. An academic with an adventurous side, he's obsessed with making sense out of insanity, order out of chaos. His office is impeccably organized to understand the odd ways the world works. He circumnavigated the globe on a ship twice. So when he started contemplating what makes things funny and found that little about it made sense, he knew that could not stand. He had to know. Then there's me. Joel Warner, the journalist. I've always suspected there's something about me that isn't quite right. You know, doctors said I possessed the dark triad of traits growing up, but they just didn't realize that I was cold, man. That's why I started a fire. That cat was a bitch, and I didn't wet the bed because I couldn't control myself, but because I just had to piss. Yeah, whatever. I'm fucking rich. I just pissed here because I wanted to. Joel, you're six. You're not rich. You had a bad dream. Yeah, fuck off, lady. Lady, I'm your mother. Whatever, lady, I'm rich. I just had to piss. And that's how Joel got sent to boarding school. Our plan, simply put, merges the best of both worlds. A mashup of science and comedy. Along the way, we aim to answer tough questions like, do stand-up comedians need to come from screwed up childhoods? Why does being funny make you more attractive? What's the funniest joke in the world? and more. Our journey begins appropriately enough with a setup straight out of a joke. Did you hear the one about the professor and the journalist who walk into a bar? So they're in Colorado and they walk into a bar that has a weekly open mic night. Very similar to my fucking plan. My plums go in my body as I think about it. Pete, the professor is wearing a sweater vest. He sticks out like a six foot four, 40 year old sore thumb. He's also calm for someone who's about to do stand-up for the first time. As a local comic put it to me, if you fail at the Squire, so that's the bar they're at, you will not only fail hard, you'll be cruelly, cruelly mocked. So they get some whiskey. My notes say Pete starts hitting on other guests. Joel is uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't think that's actually what happened, but uh, we'll go with it. And so Joel pops out of his body and he says, you know, we're in this bar, but... How did I even get here? How did I find Pete? And Joel was getting tired. He's a journalist. And he was just, just written another article 
about gangland shootings. It's like, ah, another chemically dissolved body found in a barrel. The cartel is seriously coming. Is nobody paying attention? He needed something less macabre. And he says, when I heard about a Boulder professor who was dissecting comedy's DNA, I knew I'd found my story. Uh, And he talked to Pete for the first time. And Pete's like, yeah, bitch. I started something called the Humor Research Lab. Hurl. So funny, fucking Pete. And invited me to come and watch. A week later, I sat down and watched four research assistants sit there as Pete played a clip from the hit comedy Hot Tub Time Machine, which I will admit is a quality piece of film. After 10 minutes, the students filled out a questionnaire. Uh, Did they find the scene in which the BMW's keys were removed from the dog's butt funny? (laughs) What about the line, uh, a taxidermist is stuffing my mom, is that funny? The experiment, Pete explains to me, was the latest chapter in the Hurl's attempt to understand what makes something funny. So Joel's getting fucking PTSD from his day job as a journalist, and he's like, I need, dude, I'll write about, I'll write about My Little Pony, I don't give a fuck. And then he finds Pete. And, and Pete is an interesting fella, and he started a research lab, and he's studying what makes things funny. And so Joel tunes in. He stops by, and they're watching quality film, Hot Tub Time Machine. And Joel's just saying, for someone like Pete, there's nothing unusual about his research. You know, in, in the course of his career, he's haggled with casket manufacturers, hung out with people at gun shows, and sung hymns at a fundamentalist Baptist church in the name of science. That is a well positioned, interesting sentence. Good job, Joel. Pete puts himself and others in uncomfortable situations to make sense of human behavior. Pete actually identifies with behavioral economics and shared an office with Daniel Kahneman, which is crazy. Uh, That actually makes me think that Pete is probably a little bit legit. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, the thinking fast and slow guy, like a dynasty and super successful. He shared an office with Pete. So like, They had to know each other, and he's still alive. So Pete is probably pretty successful. But where Daniel was really wanting to study why people acted irrationally as it relates to money, Pete wants to figure out why people act strangely all the time. He was studying why people react with disgust when churches or pharmaceutical companies use marketing in morally ambiguous ways. So Pete is like... he he's on this quest of just trying to understand why people are being irrational. And so not in the money context, but in the, like he's studying how there's a, he was telling a group how there was this mega church that was giving away a Hummer and everybody laughed. Cause like he was supposed to say like, ah, oh, you know, Eli Lilly, you know, you see a commercial, you see those commercials with the, the two bathtubs and Cialis back in the day. And uh, you know, and it's like, if you want your wife to love you, Cialis. And people get disgusted by that. And so he was trying to study that, and he's like giving a talk in relation to his studies, and he's telling everybody, be like, ah, oh, you know, there's this, you should be disgusted. There's this mega church, and they were giving away a Hummer. But the whole audience cracked up, and someone in the audience raised their hand and said, you said we were all disgusted, but we're laughing? Why? And Pete's like, uh great fucking question i'm gonna figure it out what makes things funny that's how he got into his research now we're back into the bar welcome to the squire cracks the mc the host starts hitting some jokes 
He turns his attention to three innocent-looking audience members closest to the stage. He's soon detailing the horrendous sexual maneuvers the wide-eyed threesome must perform with one another. <laughs> Turns out, they were like graduate students there to support Pete, and needless to say, they are fucking shocked. Okay, it reminds me actually, super quick, of uh, growing up I was completely unsocialized. Extra worse when I was uh, wrestling and cutting weight. And so I had developed a mastery of profanity rarely found in freshman high school. And I was pissed and I was cutting weight and I was going to sit at the lunch table and watch everybody else eat and be bitchy. Like that was my plan. And so I remember I, I was late or something and it was like I got stopped in the hallway by a teacher and I felt deep unjust by it. And so, you know, I go to the lunch table and I'm, I'm, I'm late and, um, you know, I'm just like looking down and I'm like, God damn, that's so fucking stupid. I'm so God damn pissed by this whole thing like this. That lady's a fucking cunt. And I sit down and my ex-girlfriend kicks me under the table. And I'm like, what the fuck is your problem? And I turn and there's a 35 year old man there. And it turns out that was my friend's youth pastor who as part of his mission was like going back and eating lunch with his like with his students you know with the the sheep in his flock and you know my friend was a very devout religious human who just like happened to endure me and you know i'm sure the fucking youth pastor was like uh sean you are friends with fucking savages like I, you don't need any Jesus. That guy needs fucking Jesus. And I was like, hello. And then he, you know, he tried to make it better. And it's like, oh, it's okay. I'm Canadian. I'm like, I don't understand. And um, that was like 18 years ago. And I still think about that. Um, that's like, that's the contrast that just happened. Like these people are, are like graduate students wanting to support their professor. And then they go to this bar and they're getting damn heckled. And the MC is still talking. He's like, hey. Bringing on the next guy. He's not a comedian. He's a moderately funny professor from the University of Colorado. Give it up for Dr. Peter McGraw. So Pete bounds out. He grabs the microphone. He promptly, like an idiot, disconnects it from the cord. The audience is like, uh, is he a professor on being mentally And uh, he fumbles with the device. He can't figure it out. Comedy one, science zero. Back out of the bar because Joel's a good writer and he's fucking jumping scenes. There's not a shortage of people studying humor. What's fascinating though, is that no one can agree on a single theory about what makes things funny. Some people think it's the superiority theory. Like we just laugh at other people's misfortune. You know, I have a couple friends that they like to watch car accident videos. And, and I'm always just like, I'm always just like, dude, those are innocent people. That's not funny. Like, let's go watch some combat footage. At least that's like, you know, bad people dying, not like just innocent people dying. Like, fuck, dude. Or Freud thought it was the relief theory, you know, where our repressed violent and sexual thoughts get bubbled off in jokes. But most experts today subscribe to some variation of the incongruity theory. The idea that humor arises when people discover that there's an inconsistency between what they expect to happen, Wonder Woman interacting with Superman, and what actually happens, Superman accidentally raping the Invisible Man. But Pete, Pete didn't really even listen to anybody in the world and he believes he can create a unifying theory of humor. Pete founded the benign violation theory. Basically, that it's that what makes something funny is when something's wrong, unsettling, 
or threatening, but simultaneously okay, acceptable, and safe. So think about that. So he's saying Pete's theory of what makes something funny is there's a violation, but it's benign. So we watched the scene in Jackass where they have the meat in their underwear and the alligators are trying to eat out of their underwear, but we know that they wouldn't release the footage if like Johnny Knoxville, if his scrotum got eaten by a fucking alligator and he died, like they wouldn't release it. So we laugh, but like watching somebody just get eaten by a wild animal, less funny. And so Pete publishes this theory and he's starting to get some good traction. And, um, you know, everybody has opinions on Pete's theory. And, you know, and, and when Joel was was asking Pete, like, hey, you know, I, I'd love to work together. Maybe we write a book. Maybe not. Let's just let's just study this together. He's like, would you ever, you know, Pete, the professor, like, would you ever go to a stand up show with me? And maybe like we could critique comedians and see if we learn anything. And Pete's like, how about I do one better and I'll get on stage myself. And Joel's like, OK. And so they're back in the bar. So Pete's up there. He fucking unplugs the mic. Everybody's like, this guy's an idiot. And he eats a dick. <laughs> Horrible, bad timing. Nobody laughs. He looks shitty. The MC comes back up and is like, I thought he was going to talk about a humor theory. Obviously, he's wrong. What a crock. Standing at the bar after his act, Pete considers his performance. And he's like, well... You can't just get up there the first night and expect to kill. But why didn't I kill? He's saying. He's like, well, first, I clearly underestimated the audience. You know, it's a big comical world out there. If he really wants to figure out what makes things funny, he's got to venture beyond the confines of the lab. So, you know, he's like thought that he had a really good idea of what makes things funny. He's watching Hot Tub Time Machine. They're probably giggling. He's making some jokes. His graduate assistants are laughing. Then he gets up on stage and he sucks. And he's like, huh, I guess the 200 people that are part of this, they really change it. I got to study this shit deeper. But he can't do it alone. Just as his scholarship needs to be vetted by his academic colleagues, he needs an objective observer someone willing to call him out if his conclusions don't pass muster in other words someone like me someone like joel still i offer one condition i say pete bitch i'll work with you but at the end of this the end of this year-long studying of humor that we're gonna do you have to get back up on stage deal deal and a partnership was born and so what started as Joel trying to escape his PTSD, what then moved into a bar where Pete really, really sucked at comedy, just turned into, they were gonna travel around the world, study humor of all types, and come back with lessons. And my priests, we're here in a Jane Goodall sense. You know, a lot of this is Joel just kind of detailing his cool adventures, and so I'm gonna do a little bit of that. I'm gonna see if I can pull out some interesting tidbits here, and then we're gonna get on our way and try and hope that one day we can be rich, Jack, and funny. Hmm? We shall see. And so they start their investigation. They start it in the States, and, and they get Louis C.K. And they have a conversation with Louis C.K., who, super famous. Then he got a little bit less famous because apparently he would, like, call people and jack off on the phone, but he's, like, really sorry about it, so we were all kind of forgotten, so it's cool. Um, 
And so this is before he jacked off, before he was that famous, and they're interviewing him. It's a half hour to showtime, and Louis C.K. looks miserable. He's clearly been traveling, and he just wants to eat his ham sandwich in peace and go up on stage. But instead, he has to deal with an overexcited professor and a nervous journalist who have barged in to ask him to deconstruct what he does on stage. It makes sense to start our search for secrets of humor by talking to comedians like Louis C.K. In many ways, Joel says, stand-up is the perfect petri dish for figuring out why things are funny. It's comedy boiled down to basics, just a comedian and an audience. No backstory, no sets. So how does someone be funny? Is it an innate talent? Should we kill Carol Dweck? Or is it something that evolves over time through absorbing the right rules and trial and error? Knowing he only has a couple moments, Pete launches into his theory, the benign violation theory. So he's like, hello, Mr. CK. I just wanted to tell you I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, and I just want to tell you a little bit about my theory. It's the benign violation theory where there's a violation, but then if it's benign, then that contrast in there, it's what, it, it's what makes it really fun. I don't think it's that simple, says Louis CK. There are thousands of kinds of jokes. I just don't believe there's one explanation. So Pete, his entire life's work dismissed, his ideas shot down, he, he panics. He says, hey, I was talking to a lady in the green room and she told me to ask you how big your penis was. What? CK smiles a little bit. Yeah, I'm not going to answer that. Pete says, is that because it's small? No smile. Sensing we have overstayed our welcome, we leave. Good one, Pete. God damn it. What the fuck are you doing? I thought you were supposed to be a professor. I work at a real ass magazine. What the fuck? On to the next one. Time to go find some up and coming comedians. With that, we are off to LA to see how many more people Pete will alienate with penis questions for science. Hey man, dude, I get it. You know, when I got caught humping a bookshelf, I panicked. I said, I was playing hide and seek, which it was really obvious I wasn't because I was just gratuitously standing up on the table and humping a bookshelf. And uh, the, the substitute teacher was like, I don't care what you were doing. Detention. So I get it, man. You know, but bad one, Pete. You could do better. And they arrive in L.A. at the comedy store. Um, I don't really know that much about comedy, actually. You know, this was, it was built in the 70s. Um, you know, a bunch of famous people have performed there. David Letterman, Andy Kaufman, Richard Pryor. And so, um, you know, they're, they're going to the com comedy store and, and they meet a guy. Um, he's a 22 year old friend of a friend. He's a financial consultant who won a comedy competition and is now trying his hand at if he's able to be successful at it. He gets up, he tells a story of a drunken knight dancing on what he thought was a stripper pole, but it was a support beam, and he knocked out an Asian lady. Uh, probably had to be there. Um, he ends the bit talking about his doctor asking to look at his penis. And he's like, oh my God, this guy's trying to molest me. Then I realized how ridiculous that was because he's not some random guy off the street. He's an optometrist. Eye doctor, ha 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 ha. The six minute show isn't bad. But we're biased. We like him. For the real verdict, we leave it to a couple of pros we've invited. Two agents. Uh, these are comedy agents. So Joel and Pete 
are meeting this guy in LA at the comedy store. He, he's a friend of a friend. He, he gets up and he does some comedy, but they actually invited two agents who spend their days hunting for the next funny stand-up comedian. And so Joel was like, hey, what would you guys think of him? And they're like, well, good news is he has, he has impressive confidence for someone so green. The bad news, he's too long-winded with little payoff. In a six-minute set, you have to get funny quick. And the lines about Doritos and crack, people who say Doritos are like crack have never tried crack. He telegraphed that like a bad boxer. He has no personality on stage, no particular voice, plus his beats were off. If he's going to tell stories, he's got to dance into it. Finally, he missed an opportunity to joke about his appearance. He looks like a gay 14-year-old. He should talk about it. If Friedman is serious about comedy, he has to get to work. He needs to get on stage four times per week. If he keeps at it, who knows? Maybe he'll be worth their time five to eight years down the road, the agents say. Fuck, dude. That is actually, I think, unfortunately, the way of the world. But, and Joel's a great writer, so he jumps around in scenes a lot. But um, there, we're popping out of the, the L.A. comedy store dude, and they're visiting a stand-up comedy class. And so I think it's in L.A. still, um, and, you know, they're, they're sitting in. So, okay, class, what's the most important thing in stand-up comedy? Your relationship with the audience, they respond in unison. What's your reason for being on stage? The teacher continues. To tell the audience what's wrong. The teacher, Dean, sitting in a director's chair, looks happy. The 12 audience members are halfway through his intro to stand-up class. Today, Dean, named best comedy teacher in L.A., is going to teach them about riffing the art of interacting with your audience. Stand-up comedy is the most terrifying thing on the planet, and riffing is the most terrifying element of stand-up, he says. Each student has to get up on stage and start riffing like they're working the room. And remember, be playfully mean. Well, hey guys, are, are you two dating? Oh, uh, yes. Oh, really? You look like brother and sister. Are you sure you're not related? Uh, yeah, we're sure. How do you know? You know, and it's like, <laughs> I got nothing else. Like, you're supposed to be able to riff uh, like that. So that's what they're practicing, which is interesting that you're practicing the skill of riffing. Weird. Everything is the way. And so earlier that day, they'd visited Dean at his house, a small bungalow in Hollywood filled with small yapping dogs, whiffs of incense, and the floatsome of a life lived oddly. Good sentence. Respect. For Dean... Everything has culminated in his life's work, a taxonomy of comedy that other people can build on. He starts diagramming jokes on a whiteboard, and he talks about how um, his idea is that there's really two different opposite scripts slash frames. So like an example of that. So you've got one script is the setup, the other is the punchline. So take for example, is the doctor home? No. The doctor's young and pretty wife says, come in. And so... That, why is that a joke? Okay, so is the doctor home? You're mentally thinking, you're like, hey, is the doctor home? Like, I, my son, I think he might need stitches. I think the answer is going to be yes. You go in, son gets stitches, it's great. No, but come on in, says the pretty young wife. Get it? Because they're going to fuck. The script, suggested by the setup, indicates that the patient wants the doctor at home so he can be treated by him. The script, by the punchline, is the patient does not want the doctor so he could be treated by the doctor's wife in a different way. 
Okay, okay, interesting. So another example. My wife is a really great housekeeper. The obvious meaning of this phrase, Dean calls, that's the target assumption. That's like, hey, my wife is really good at keeping the house in order, runs a tight ship, but what else could being a good housekeeper mean? How could that key word he calls the connector be construed? So my wife is an excellent housekeeper. When we got the divorce, the bitch got the house. Or the only issue is she takes invoices out of our joint account and her prices are steep. Or I talk to her and ask her to do things and she nods along but clearly doesn't understand English. I don't know. And so it's interesting. And Pete and Joel, they're starting to, starting to get this broad brush exposure to comedy. They say learning the basics of his joke writing system a comedian does not make. Meaning, yeah, that's mechanical, that's interesting, there's probably something there, but like, that's a, that's a portion at best. And so, this dude Dean puts on these classes and he teaches people of all sorts about comedy. Pete and I are impressed. But does that mean that rote instruction is the best way to become funny? Questions like this leave many established comedians fuming. There's no shortcut to stand-up. They put forth that time spent on stage is the only way to learn. These critics might have a point, or they might not. Sooner or later, aspiring comics need to put in stage time. But could taking classes or working with an expert speed up the process? Pete and Joel say nobody has tested it before. And so there's a, a rule, he gives an example, but there's a rule in improv, which is yes and. And so basically what that means is somebody, you're, you're all up there on stage and somebody's like, you know, I, what's the scene? Um, I'm sitting there in a, BMW, in a BMW, yes, and I'm really, really hungry. And the next person says, yes, and I just tried to go to Chipotle, but it was closed. Yes, and I'm really mad and I'm thinking of ending it all. Yes, and if I do end it all... I think I'm going to take a lot of people with me. Yes, and how do I start the plan, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> like, that's, I went to a dark place. Uh, but So um, that's improv. And so he brings that up because there's, there's improv comedy like that, and then there's stand-up, which we talked about, which is you know one person up there. And, and they're kind of just exploring both of those. All good comedy talks about what is wrong and what is funny about a situation. A lot of times... The approach for both improv and stand-up is what bothers you about a situation, what's truthful about it. Again and again, we've heard that the best comedians are somewhat outsiders who can stand apart from everyone and understand what's funny about this specific situation. So I just saw something funny. Uh, there was a Instagram video. There was a live news anchor talking about baseball, and it was like three... I mean, I'm assuming everybody's American, but three white American, tr like Protestant, like I am a I am a white person, and then one like really charismatic guy with a Hispanic accent, and you know, like there's this unwritten code that you basically can't be too crazy on live TV, and this guy goes, yeah, and to be honest, you know, the refs they don't know shit, and everyone's like. All the, and all the news anchors are just fucking cracking up because this well-meaning guy with an accent didn't quite understand the time and place to say shit. It's like that contrast. There's something funny about that. For something so theoretically simple, stand-up comedians all stress how complicated, 
delivering good jokes truly is. There are a million factors that could, could muck up even a simple joke. And more than anything else, comedians seem to worry about the space they're trying to be funny in. Now, that's interesting. Uh, and, and Joel says, what does this even mean? Uh, what constitutes a good room or a bad room? So this is weird, and I actually didn't quite think about this, but um, within a week of, it, of each other, I gave the same presentation uh, in Ohio and Iowa. In Ohio, it was a packed room. Like, there was standing room only, not because I'm so cool, but because the room was too small. And, dude, I killed. Like, I was less prepared there, and, like, it was, I, you know, I was making funny jokes, and I was teaching everybody about data analytics, and, like, crushed it. It was, it was great. Uh, and then I go a week later, I'm more prepared because I like learned some good lessons in that first presentation. I was like, shit, dude, first lesson is actually prepare. I just had to use animal magnetism. But in the second one, objectively a better presentation to a huge room, silence. Like I thought in my head, like, oh, this, I'm going to start with a joke. And it was just like, not even a trickle of a smile on anybody's fucking face. And I wonder how much of that was the room. If the comics had it their way, clubs, clubs would all look more or less the same. A densely packed, dimly lit space with low ceilings, red curtains, and nothing all, nothing at all that's blue. It's like I heard um, one time how to, how to make a great party is the party has to be a little too loud, a little too dark, a little too many people and a little too much booze. And I actually started to feel that in my fraternity as parties were, you know, like, because there's this critical point in a party where it's like, it's like a little ember that could, could sputter out. And then if somebody comes back later at 10 PM, they're like, yeah, DU is not having a party. And, you know, and that word spreads, no party. And so I would, in that critical moment, I'd force everyone in my fraternity. I'd just drag them down and we'd just fucking talk to girls and, until the party happened. And so there's something also there. So a picture's starting to form for Pete and Joel, but they're far from finished and need to visit many more places before this crystallizes in something tangible. And if you want to continue that journey with me that ends with five minutes of my best stand-up, you're going to have to tune in on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end. <laughs>